This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, August 11th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kate Trinko. Today, we're going to share an interview from our Daily Signal colleagues, Fred Lucas and Jarrett Stepman, who host The Right Side of History, a great podcast that you should subscribe to. Fred and Jarrett interview Robert Riley, author of America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. We are now one week into our Daily Signal podcast survey, and I'd like to ask you to take just a few minutes to complete the survey. You can find it at dailysignal.com survey. Again, that's dailysignal.com survey. It should only take you five minutes, and we greatly appreciate hearing your feedback. Now, onto our top news. In the early morning hours Monday, Chicago faced looting. According to Fox News, 13 police officers were hurt and over 100 people have been arrested. Here's Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, a Democrat, at a press conference Monday via Fox Business. We are waking up um, in shock this morning. In early morning hours of um, Today, dozens of individuals came to our loop, Mag Mile, River North, and Gold Coast neighborhoods, as well as our commercial district around uh, North and Clybourne. These individuals engaged when it can only be described as brazen and extensive criminal looting and destruction. And to be clear, this had nothing to do with legitimate, protected First Amendment um, expression. Lightfoot also said this. And to those who engage in this criminal behavior, let's be clear. We are coming for you. We are already at work in finding you, and we intend to hold you accountable for your actions. I don't care. I do not care. Whatever justification was given for this, there is no justification for criminal behavior ever. You have no right, no right, to take and destroy the property of others. Our residents deserve to be safe. Our businesses deserve to understand and enjoy safety and security of their property and in their employees. And our police officers deserve to be able to do their job without having to worry about shots being fired, being uh, projectiles being thrown, and being maced. This is not anywhere near acceptable. According to the Chicago Tribune, city officials said a motivation was police shooting of a 20-year-old Sunday. Allegedly, that man was being chased by the police and fired shots himself. He has received medical care and is expected to survive. After more than 70 nights of riots in Portland, President Trump says the National Guard should be called in to stop the violence. On Monday, Trump tweeted, Portland, which is out of control, should finally, after almost three months, bring in the National Guard. The mayor and governor are putting people's lives at risk. They will be held responsible. The Guard is ready to act immediately. The courthouse is secured by Homeland. Last week, local police in Portland declared several gatherings of violent protesters to be riots and fired tear gas at rioters for the first time in about a month. Portland police arrested 25 people over the weekend for carrying out acts of violence. President Donald Trump is sparring with Senator Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska. Sass criticized Trump for suspending the payroll tax for employees in an executive order, saying the pen and phone theory of executive lawmaking is unconstitutional slop. President Obama did not have the power to unilaterally rewrite immigration law with DACA, and President Trump does not have the power to unilaterally rewrite the payroll tax law. Trump tweeted Monday, Rhino Ben Sass, who needed my support and endorsement in order to get the Republican nomination for Senate from the great state of Nebraska, has, now that he's got it, thank you President T, gone rogue again. This foolishness plays right into the hands of the radical left Dems. Attorney General William Barr says radical political ideas have become a, quote, substitute for religion. 
Barr sat down for an interview on Fox News with Mark Levin that aired on Sunday night and explained that the rise of the radical progressive left stems from politics becoming all-consuming in America. Barr explained that when he was attorney general 30 years ago, it was common to be friends with people across the aisle. Not so today. America is so divided because, for the extreme left, politics has become their religion, Barr explained. Nowadays, you have, I think, the left has essentially withdrawn uh, from uh, this model and really represents a Rousseauian revolutionary uh, party that, that believes in tearing down the system that what's wrong about America today all has to do with the institutions we have and we have to tear them down. And they're interested in complete political victory. They're not interested in compromise. They're not interested in dialectic exchange of views. They're interested in total victory. And that's, it's a, it's a secular religion. It's a substitute for religion. They view their political opponents and they, you know, as evil that because we stand in the way of their progressive utopia that they're trying to reach. And uh, that's what gives, you know, the intensity to the partisan feelings that people feel today. Because for them, this pilgrimage we're all on is a political pilgrimage. Everything is reduced to politics. For people who don't have that perspective, politics is important, but it's not the whole purpose of life. As Beirut continues to reel from a massive explosion last week, Prime Minister Hassan Diab and his cabinet have resigned. Blaming the explosion, which reportedly originated from a fire hitting a stockpile of ammonium nitrate on corruption, Diab said, per USA Today, I have discovered that corruption is bigger than the state and that the state is paralyzed by this ruling clique and cannot confront it or get rid of it. There have been protests in Lebanon, and according to USA Today, the damage caused by the explosion is estimated to cost 10 to 15 billion, and 300,000 people are now homeless. Jimmy Lai, the chairman and majority owner of Hong Kong's pro-democratic newspaper, Apple Daily, and its publishing company, Next Digital, was arrested on Monday. Lai was arrested on charges of colluding with foreign forces, a violation of the national security law. The sons of the well-known media entrepreneur were also arrested, along with several other Apple Daily executives. Beijing implemented a national security law in Hong Kong at the end of June. The law makes collusion with foreign agents illegal and criminalizes things like terrorism. Violators of the national security law can face life in prison or even extradition to mainland China. About 200 police raided Apple Daily's newsroom at the time of Lai's arrest and looked through papers on the desks of journalists. Mark Simon, a senior executive at Next Digital, told NPR that the arrests are due to a combination of charges. Most are being arrested on some type of conspiracy to commit fraud charges, but really it's just an effort to decapitate the management as they took out the top senior management with those charges. Stock shares for Next Digital grew by over 300% on Monday as pro-democracy advocates rallied to support Lai and the media company. It's a critical time in our nation's history. Now more than ever, at The Daily Signal, we're committed to equipping you with the best information and insight we possibly can. And to do that, we need your help. By sharing your thoughts and suggestions through our five-minute online survey, you can help The Daily Signal improve our reporting and reach more Americans with the message of freedom. Find the five-minute survey at dailysignal.com survey. Again, that's dailysignal.com survey. Next up, we'll have Jared and Fred's interview with Robert Riley, and they'll discuss America's founding. Do you have an opinion that you'd like to share? Leave us a voicemail at 202-608-6205 or email us at letters at dailysignal.com. Yours could be featured on the Daily Signal podcast. We are now joined by Robert R. Riley, the director of the Westminster Institute 
and a widely published author who has a new book, America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. Thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be with you. So obviously your book is quite timely right now, as we've seen so many attacks, I think, on America and what it stands for really coming from seemingly all sides. We've seen, uh, had a summer of attacks on statues and, and, and a lot of, I think, inability from especially America's elite to really defend what this country is all about. Uh, you really break down your book in, in such a, a great job what has made the United States good, great, and successful, and in a large part because of its connection to a, a larger Western tradition. And, and you kind of define this Western tradition based on three cities, Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome, which I thought was very interesting. Can you kind of explain uh, what exactly that means? Yeah, sure. I tried to examine what were the necessary presuppositions for there to be such a thing as the American founding. In other words, what was the lineage of the ideas that made such a thing conceivable in the first place? And that lineage took me back to ancient Athens, ancient Israel, and the dawn of Christianity, because each of them contributed something indispensable. Judaic monotheism was a startlingly unique revelation amidst the sea of polytheism and pantheism. Simply extraordinary that the Jews said that their God was one, startling enough right there, number two, that their God was transcendent, that is outside the world, though through his providence he could act in the world. Second of all, that he was all good, that everything he made was good. And the one thing he made especially well was man, who, as Genesis says, was made in God's image and likeness. Well, that was quite a revelation, again unique in the ancient Middle East. And it imbued man with a certain dignity and an inviolability, which is quite extraordinary. In fact, I think you could say any claim to human rights today, in some sense or another, is owing to that revelation in Genesis, that people are made in God's image and likeness. From ancient Athens, you have philosophy, reason, the gift of the Greeks, in that they thought that reason is capable of apprehending reality and its essence, of knowing what it really is. As distinct from simply having opinions about things, you could know the truth of them. And this truth was not, let's say, contingent. This is, you could, you could come to know what's true everywhere at all times for all people. And one of those most important things you could come to know is what is good and what is bad, what is just and what is unjust. How could you come to know these things? Because you could apprehend the nature of man and what virtue is as opposed to vice and how uh, the, the end of man is in the perfection of his nature, which is rational. And therefore, his apprehension of the good and of the ultimate good, which is God, defines the end of that nature. That was, again, a startling contribution that sort of broke the grip of tribal man on his conception of things. If you want to know what tribal man looks like, look at what the United States is devolving in today with all of the identity politics that it's uh, based on race or it's based on gender, it's based on anything, but the common apprehension that we all are human beings and share the same nature and also have within us the image and likeness of God, which is the source of the respect which we owe each other. Anyway, that's jumping ahead. And then Christianity enters the picture, universalizes the truths of the Jewish religion, because Judaism, let's say, was a, had a universal God, but in a, still a tribal religion. Christianity has a universal God and is a universal religion. Anyone can be a Christian. Uh, it enhanced that 
uh, understanding of the sanctity of man due to the image and likeness of God in him uh, makes him the object of God's infinite love and dates the ultimate end of man, which is to share in God's life, is reached outside of the political order, that the political order does not contribute to man's salvation. Each person has an individual relationship with this transcendent God and is to reach his destiny through his faith in him and the gift of God's grace. The state is forever devalued after the advent of Christianity. The state can no longer subsume the total man. This, to say the least, was revolutionary. The Our Father was a revolutionary prayer. For Christ to say, my kingdom is not of this world, was revolutionary. Uh, to say that uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar and what to God, what is God's, was also shocking. It said the, the, the people who heard Christ say this were amazed by it. And well, they might have been because no one had said it before. And it too, it once again, it meant there was a secular realm and there was a sacred realm. And it was on the basis of this teaching that eventually within the West, uh, the notion of dual sovereignty grew up, or what was called the two swords, the secular sword and the spiritual sword. And you had the same individual under these dual sovereignties. And it, this is what first created the space for the development of constitutional rule. Uh, that's probably too long an answer, but it's such a profound subject. All of these ingredients had to be there uh, for the development of democratic constitutional government and all of the principles without which it won't develop. And that, of course, begins with the equality of mankind. The understanding that sovereignty is invested in the people, that God doesn't directly appoint a king or a ruler of some kind. Rather, it is that that ruler um, is consented to by the people if the ruler is to be legitimate. Therefore, the requirement of consent is a natural uh, development from the apprehension of the equality of all people and the notion of popular sovereignty. Out of this come the other things that what touches all must be approved by all. Uh, they, they must have the opportunity to consent in all the things which affect them. This turns into the right to vote, the right to representation. And also, by the way, Something that was universally accepted uh, by the time of the Middle Ages was the right to revolution should the ruler turn into a tyrant. And you find then in the, say, you know, 12th century, early 13th century, the development of ecclesiastical corporations, church organizations, which are ruled by these principles the religious orders like the Dominicans, church councils, and the uh, early development of parliaments, not only in England, but on the continent. That was great. I think what's very interesting is how these ideas were coming together very much in the Middle Ages, that you actually had a, a degree of liberty and limitation on the power uh, of secular authorities, so to speak, because you do have that kind of dual sovereignty. But something that I think is very interesting that you bring up is the kind of rise of, of absolutism uh, starting really in the 16th century, how a lot of uh, monarchies and governments started to become unmoored, uh, in a sense, even from the law, and how that influenced the mind and thought of the founding fathers when, of course, the United States was created. Can you explain that transition and, and how that influenced the founders? Yeah, I think that there were, that was, of course, a very profound uh, transformation that began in the late Middle Ages uh, with a, a dis, let's call it a distorted theology, uh, which led to a distorted metaphysics, which uh, inevitably affected uh, 
political order. Now, let's just quickly take that at the theological level. Thomas Aquinas uh, voiced what was the general opinion in the understanding of God that in him the will follows upon the intellect. In other words, reason rules. God is, above all things, logos, which means reason. So reason rules, and the will executes what the reason has conceived. Now, William of Ockham famously flipped that relationship and said, no, no, the will rules, and reason follows. So the traditional notion, the notion at the heart of the Middle Ages was the intellect. The intellect directs the will. The will then acts in accord with reason. When you get this down to the human level, it means that rational laws are first conceived and, and then enforced. Now, when you flip that relationship and say, no, God is pure will and power, unbound by anything, certainly unbound by any rational notion that man may have, that he is not really understandable because um, God can will anything. The result of this, when it's devoted to the human level, is that in, in this is called, by the way, the technical name in theology is voluntarism. So you have a voluntarist God. Uh, in imitation of a voluntarist God, man's reason then becomes the servant of the will rather than its director. So the will rules, the primacy of will, not the primacy of reason. Now, that becomes the foundation for absolutism in the political realm. First of all, in the divine right of kings, as expressed by Robert Filmer and James I in England, was that the sovereign is absolute, receives his powers from God alone. God directly appoints him. There is no popular sovereignty or consent of the people. The ruler is accountable to no one except God. The ruler is above the laws he makes for his people. He is unaccountable. He cannot be held to account. There is no right to revolution. Of course, there's no right to consent or representation. And therefore, the ruler can rule you know, arbitrarily according to his will. He is not held to reason. Law is no longer reason. It is simply the expression of the ruler's will. Now, this development was aided by the fracture of Christendom when Martin Luther, uh, who was under the profound influence of William of Ockham, decided to dissolve all the church corporations and left man at that time not no longer under the dual sovereignty of both church and state. The church was dissolved as an effective organization, so the prince became the head of the church. Understandably so, this considerably enhanced the power of the ruler. It is to the prince that Luther turned for the reform of the church. Luther uh, posited that the ruler was directly appointed by God. There was no right to revolution against the ruler, at least for a good deal of what Luther's Luther's teachings. He later changed his mind. But one can see how the rule of absolutism was enhanced by this. You then have a secular form of absolutism proposed by Thomas Hobbes in England, who sort of dispensed with the religious side of it, except insofar as he made the head of the state the head of the church also. He also made the ruler absolute on secular grounds with his conception of the state of nature of man being a war of all against all. And the only way this war could be stopped is by having an absolute sovereign with absolute powers who also would rule without the consent of his subjects. Now, these notions together 
were repugnant to the American colonists when they became subject to rule without their consent. At that time in the 18th century, starting in the 1760s, the British Parliament asserted in the Declaratory Act that they could rule the colonies in all matters whatsoever, unconstrained, and without the consent of the colonists. Those colonists understood themselves as possessing the rights of Englishmen, number one, and through their royal charters, uh, they, they had such rights. But when there was no appeal on the grounds of English constitutionalism to some remedy to the absolute rule under which they were placed by Parliament and George III, they saw that they had to make a higher appeal. And that higher appeal was to the rights of man based upon natural law. And that ruling them without their consent, it was offense against justice. And it defined tyrannical rule against which they had the right to revolution, which they then exercised. So to understand the colonists and the way they talked and the things to which they appealed, you have to see as they were reconnecting themselves with that ancient lineage, with that ancient heritage, and restoring the primacy of reason, restoring the rule of reason, and the understanding of man as a rational creature whose consent in his rule was required by his very nature. And therefore, you find the magnificent articulation in the preamble of the Declaration of Independence that lays out those principles under the the laws of nature and of nature's God, and that man is endowed by his creator with certain inalienable rights. That's very powerfully a natural law document. So the American founding was a restoration. It required a revolution for that restoration to take place. And then they gained themselves the opportunity of, for the first time in history, through reflection and and, uh, choice, founding a regime based upon those principles. That's the uniqueness of the American founding. It was also unique in its constitutional makeup of the dual sovereignty of uh, federalism, of the rule of the federal government and the autonomy of the states in certain matters. Following up on that, I wanted to ask about, uh, you talked about how the principle of constitutional rule sort of emerged in the Middle Ages, was rejected for a long time up until the founding. There were several times throughout the existence of the United States that there were factions who in some way rejected it, be that, I guess, maybe the Confederacy, uh, maybe an emergence of the Communist Party, even in the 20th century. I wonder if you could maybe reflect on how what we're seeing today, uh, not just with these massive demonstrations and rejection of history, but, but even this rejection of having a free flow of debate, how what we're seeing today uh, is, is it unique from previous rejections of constitutional rule? Well, I, you know, yes and no. Obviously, the principles of the United States as articulated in the Declaration and instantiated, for the most part, in the Constitution were, were controversial from the beginning. That's why there was a war. They were generally accepted within the United States, but of course, within the United States, there was that uh, that sort of original sin, uh, slavery. We make sure to say, however, that slavery existed everywhere. Slavery was the norm uh, in human history for millennia. There was slavery. What so the existence of slavery? What was not unique? What was unique was the articulation of principles which led to the elimination of slavery. First and foremost, the the statement that all men are created equal, which, by the way, that is an ancient principle. It's not, not a new one. So it was hoped 
that evil institution would slowly die out within the new United States. It was eliminated rather immediately in, in the 10 years between the, the Declaration and the Constitution. Uh, all of the states north of the Mason-Dixon line and north of the Ohio River uh, either eliminated slavery outright or, or put in place measures that led to its elimination. And, of course, the Northwest Ordinance, uh, which uh, set forth uh, how the, the new territories would be ruled that constituted uh, a large part of the Midwest and the upper Midwest, forever forbade slavery. And the Constitution provided for the opportunity to pass a law in 1807 or 1808 that would forbid the foreign slave trade. And indeed, when at that time, the United States Congress passed a law banning that trade, and 12 years later, they made it a capital offense. So there was, there was a general understanding. Certainly, it was understood uh, at the time of the founding that slavery was an evil by almost everyone. The point was how to get, you know, how what to do. This is a slavery was an institution that existed from time immemorial. How is it that we do get rid of it? Unfortunately, that of course was a problem that was only finally resolved with a brutal civil war, in which the founding principles of the United States were defended and finally applied universally. So again, that took considerable time through the civil rights movements and other things that black Americans uh, could finally assume all of the rights which men by their nature have. So that, but, but let's get, that's not the only source of contestation over the principles. <clears throat> Certainly in the 20th century, we know rather dramatically that the equality of all men was explicitly rejected by Nazi Germany, which was based upon a race theory of history and the superiority of the Aryan race and the necessity to eliminate Jews and enslave Slavs and gypsies and so forth. It couldn't have been a more direct denial of the principle of equality and the other expression of that, <clears throat> which turned out to be far more damaging because it lasted so much longer, was that of the Soviet Union <clears throat> and the communist assertion of a class theory of history. So all people were not created equal in the Soviet Union. The proletariat was <clears throat> superior. And of course, the vanguard of the, of the proletariat, which was the party uh, exercised absolute power, and the kulaks and the bourgeoisie were physically eliminated, clergy was physically eliminated, etc. <clears throat> Excuse me. By the way, you see an early premonition of these things in the French Revolution, which I, in one chapter of the book, <clears throat> compare to the American Revolution to show how different they were the, the French Revolution was the manifestation of the radical Enlightenment principles uh, that man could be perfected through his own means. And usually those means required the absolute power of the state and the elimination of Christianity. Uh, the French Revolution undertook a, a brutal de-Christianization campaign in France through the confiscation of church properties, the exile of priests and nuns, the execution of priests and nuns, uh, the, the uh, elimination of crosses in graveyards on church steeples, uh, etc. Uh, the idea being that man, of course, was alienated from his, uh, his own self by this re religion which made him a slave, you see, as Rousseau said. And therefore, you'd be liberated if you could get rid of it. And get rid of it, they tried to do. Uh, one can only 
Well, if you you invite the 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 tremendous contrast between the American and French Revolution by simply asking, would such a dechristianization campaign have been conceivable in the American colonies at the time? And the answer is, of course not. It was inconceivable. In fact, from most of the pulpits, the revolution was preached. Uh, there was a tremendous compatibility, as de Tocqueville later observed, between reason and faith in the United States as they were opponents in the French Revolution. The American Revolution was not on the basis of a project to reach man's perfection. It was a revolution made by almost a unanimously Christian population that knew that man was not perfectible through his own powers, that man is a sinner, uh, that man must uh, engage in contrition, that he must turn to God for forgiveness. He, is, he doesn't obtain any of these things through the state. Rather, the state must be kept on its own reservation to allow man's religious life to be conducted freely. So it wasn't a project of self-perfection. Therefore, it didn't make itself the enemy of Christianity or any other religion. Therefore, you can look at such a simple thing as the dates on the American founding documents. 1789 for the Constitution. 1776 for the Declaration. Not true in revolutionary France. They started uh, with the year zero. You see, they were restarting history, or history was truly beginning with their secular project for man's divinization. Nothing could be more alien to the American Revolution. But you see in the French Revolution a, a foretaste of what would come later in the National Socialist and the International Socialist Revolutions, which were in their different ways, also secular projects for man's perfection, but at least as man as they conceived him as the class man or the classless man, classless society, or the supremacy and universal rule of the Aryan race. Why do you think it is that the American Revolution was just a real exception among revolutions? Most revolutions ended in some sort of despotism, the way the French Revolution did? Well, I think that's because of the principles on which it was founded, which were anti-despotic, which did not allow for despotism. Uh, you know, the, the French Revolution, it, its principles uh, more or less inevitably ended in despotism. It, it required despotism for its success. Uh, that was completely opposite to that of the United States. And, of course, you could point to the same thing in uh, the Soviet Union or um, Nazi Germany or Pol Pot's Cambodia or the Communist Revolution in China. You know, the first thing they have to do is get rid of religion. The enemy is religion. Any Anything that points man to a transcendent which means to a standard higher than that standard set by the state, is the enemy of the state, and the state's project cannot be reached or executed without the elimination of religion. Uh, again, the United States quite, was quite the opposite. It was a founding by a Christian, largely Christian people. Uh, who, who wanted a state that was compatible with how they conceived their spiritual life to be. In fact, they wanted a, a state that was constitutionally reined in in terms of their free exercise of religion. And today, the United States is, is being transformed into a Leviathan, which is the name Thomas Hobbes gave to this absolute sovereign that he proposed, uh, 
and and that can be seen in the attempted restrictions on the exercise of religion in the United States by certain sectors of the American government, whether you know federal or state. They think that the suppression of religion, or at least its restriction, is necessary for their progressivist view of uh, the uses of government, because they're they're more in tune with the French Revolution than the American one, and they think the state should be the vehicle for the transformation of man into whatever uh, view of man they have. Uh, just to give you a little taste of it, I live in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and the COVID virus is has been an interesting experience in what it has revealed about the the character of certain of our rulers and how they use the close to absolute power they have assumed for themselves in light of this virus. And here I'm not speaking against any sensible uh, precautions taken to uh, deal with this virus, but I the governor in this Commonwealth uh, assumed upon himself the power to say what was an essential activity that would be allowed to continue and what were non-essential activities that wouldn't be allowed to continue, at least for a period of time. And quite surprisingly, uh, the exercise of one's religion was found non-essential. So close the churches, close the synagogues, However, abortion was found to be an essential service. Uh, that must be permitted, but, but the exercise of your religion wasn't. I think that reveals something special in the character of uh, s certain political rulers in the United States. And what Leviathan will look more and more like, uh, the more powers that are assumed by the government. Absolutely. And that kind of leads to my final question here, which is, you know, America really is on, on trial in, in many ways right now, maybe even Western civilization in general. It, it seems that the ideas that you've written about in this book uh, really have few defenders in this country's leading intellectual and academic institutions, I think, in many cases, quite shamefully. The American left appear, appears to be going almost completely in this kind of 1619 project route, defining America as fundamentally uh, racist and rotten and going really full bore into the identity politics, really the kind of you know, almost tribal ideas that you define in your book that's, that's very pre-modern in a lot of ways. But it also seems that there are some on the right even who have kind of gone after the founding. I think notably uh, Patrick Deneen at Notre Dame criticizing the founding as being the, the kind of basis for, you see, the modern radicalism today, um, and, and maybe the individualism and liberalism in modern America. Can, can you kind of a, a address that and, and, and talk about, is there any validity to this, and explain also why you say that ultimately the founding is where we need to get back to, uh, not a rebuke of the founding? Yes, I think you hit the nail on the head there, that the the problem we are facing today in identity politics is the retribalization of people. And retribalization means they no longer accept the principle that all people are created equal. It's precisely a rejection of that. And they need to take a good, hard look at what tribal life was like. The 1619 Project is, is so suffused with ignorance that it is... Um, you know, interesting, uh, and just for that fact, the claim that uh, the English brought slavery to the United States is true insofar as they restrict it to black slavery. True enough, they brought black slaves, which they obtained in Africa from other black tribes that had first enslaved the people whom they bought to bring to the American colonies. But there was already slavery here, widely practiced amongst the Native Americans. They led tribal lives. And as was the practice uh, in tribal life everywhere, it didn't have to be on the American continent. You could find it in the ancient world. 
You can find it today uh, in the Middle East, in uh, remote parts of Africa and South America. Where there's tribal life, there's almost always slavery. And wars with the opposing tribes, the victor takes the members of the other tribes as slaves. And the American Indians practice slavery. So slavery was already here. Quite amusingly, you know, the Supreme Court made this recent decision that the eastern part of Oklahoma ought to be given back to the tribes of uh, that area, according to some ancient treaty. The other side of the question was that uh, at the time of the Civil War, those tribal areas sided with the Confederacy. Why? Because the tribes, they, they had slaves, and they wanted to keep them. So keep in mind that tribalism almost is always accompanied with slavery. Uh, why? Because the tribal mentality has no means through which to apprehend that all people are created equal. So for them, slavery is a perfectly natural development. So as these people um, in the United States embrace tribal identities, whether it's based on race <clears throat> um, or it's based on some kind of a transgenderism or what, but whatever particular identity they think trumps everything else, they're descending into tribal life. Now, the, the, the fact is there's very little opposition to this from the intelligentsia of the United States, whether it's in the, uh, the media or the academy or at the upper reaches of the business world because all of these people's minds have been corrupted uh, for several generations of miseducation in which theories supporting this kind of thing and denying the principles of the American founding have been taught. Progressivism itself, from John Dewey, from President Wilson, they're all denials of the principles in the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. They get in the way, so they must be got rid of, you see. One thing I, well, I could quote, and if you've looked at the book, you'll see the instances of the number of times the American founders <clears throat> said the principles on which we are basing our enterprise have a transcendent source, and they are immutable. Human nature is immutable. Therefore, these truths apply at all times <clears throat> to all people everywhere. Now, if you believe that, <clears throat> if you accept that, you get to keep the republic which the American founders gave us. If you deny those principles, you don't get to keep it because it can't possibly survive in the absence of them. And it's, uh, that's exactly, those principles are denied in American progressivism. Obviously, they are denied in any form of moral relativism, of cultural relativism, and so forth. <clears throat> You know, I can just give one example that kind of helps make the whole thing clear. From President Barack Obama's book, The Audacity of Hope, let me read you this sentence. Quote, implicit in the Constitution's structure and the very idea of ordered liberty was a rejection of absolute truth the infallibility of any idea or ideology or theology or ism and any tyrannical consistency that might lock future generations into a single unalterable course, period, close quotes. So the truth does not set you free. The truth enslaves you. So you must deny this truth. There are no transcendent, immutable truths. That's exactly what President Obama is saying. That, so the rejection of absolute truth, I mean, can you, it's, it's stunning to see it sort of in naked type, a 
a statement so antithetical to the founding principles of the United States. So when it reaches the highest office of the land, you know that we're in trouble. Absolutely. Well, Robert, thank you so much for, for joining us on the right side of history. This is uh, incredibly enlightening and I think also incredibly important for Americans now who believe it's very strongly in what this country stands for, but are faced with an incredible challenge that comes from some of those powerful institutions in this country. Uh, it, it seems that you've done a great service to, to the many Americans who right now are looking for information, for better understanding when they they see and hear these attacks occurring so often. Uh, it really, I, I do recommend to listeners in our audience to pick this book up and, and, and grapple with the philosophy and the ideas that have been passed down to them by the founding generation that we have inherited uh, and to better be able to articulate to our, our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, uh, what makes this special. So again, thank you very much, Robert, uh, for joining us and talking about these things. You're very welcome. You know, as dire as the situation is, as bleak as it looks, we do have a path forward. And that is to return to the founding principles of the United States, uh, to recapture these immutable transcendent truths by which we ought to conduct our lives. So thanks very much for the opportunity. You're quite welcome. And again, the, the name of the book is America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. Thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on the Ricochet Audio Network. All our shows can be found on Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.